When I came up here, Mike made a point uh, to remind me that the recording device has a nice little record pause. I've probably preached at Grace and then Arlington maybe 20 times in the last four or five years, and I think I've recorded two sermons. So I have it right, Mike. So thank you very much for uh, the reminder. Well, good morning this morning. That's right. Uh, it is a great joy to be back with you. Uh, Lindsay and the kids send their greetings and their wishes that they could be with us. Lord willing, we will be back in the fall. Uh, Lindsay and I have missed you very much. Uh, and I'm glad to be back. Five years ago today, Lindsay and I moved from Texas to Northern Virginia. Uh, and now here I am coming from Texas back to Northern Virginia. Uh, so who knows what the Lord has in store in the future. Please open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. It'll be easy to find. It's page number 2 uh, in your Bibles. Page 2, carrying over to page 3. This morning we'll consider perhaps the darkest chapter in the entire Scripture. Um, but before we do that, and because we're doing that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, who is a God like you, perfect in power and perfect in holiness? We confess this morning that we are not as we should be, and we give thanks to you for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would be with us now by your Holy Spirit. Take your word, plant it deep in our hearts, that we may bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. And God, we ask that you would take dead hearts and make them alive. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Many of you know, and you will not be surprised by this, but for those of you who don't, Lindsay and I have a particular marriage habit that some of you share. Uh, and that, that habit developed very early on in our marriage, and it continues today. And my confession to you this morning and our habit is this. We are binge TV watchers. All right? We don't watch TV very often. Uh, it's not something that we do kind of as a normal routine. But what is a normal routine is every now and then we will get our, a hold of one particular TV show that's probably 2, 3, 4, 5, 20 years old. And we will spend several nights after the kids are in bed for weeks and maybe even months on end, depending on the show, just binge watching this show. And we get so sucked in that we will spend two or three hours in the evenings. And it's ter terrible. Pray for us. But this is something that we do. And so I'm here to tell you that if that is something that you do or would like to do, you should check out shows like Monk, uh, shows like 24. Friday Night Lights was particularly uh, uh, good for us after we moved up here to D.C. reminded us of Texas. Uh, and one that we've watched, I think, through maybe three times in our marriage, which is embarrassing, but The West Wing. By far the best show in the last 25 years. So The West Wing. There, there's a list of shows for you to binge TV watch. Uh, and here's the latest. So as of about maybe two weeks ago, uh, we started watching Person of Interest. It was recommended to us by the Cullies, actually, maybe a year or so ago. And uh, we hadn't watched it, but we, uh, we decided one day, hey, we're going to watch Person of Interest. And we were completely hooked. So you can watch Person of Interest if you like. The, the background is that it's uh, kind of got this creepy big brother thing going on uh, where there's a mega computer that the government controls and it watches everything and it sees, uh, it can predict when bad things are going to happen. And so the premise is that the government uses this mega computer to stop terrorist attacks. But there's this, this guy, this creator lurking in the shadows who uses the mega computer to stop uh, good, bad things happen, happening to innocent people. So he has a little team of, 
of corrupt cops, and it's, it's horrible. But anyway, he has this team that he uses to stop bad things happening to good people. And uh, in one particular episode that I found uh, very poignant kind of uh, for our verse this morning, or chapter this morning, uh, one episode had a national security analyst who was targeted for assassination by the federal government. Not that that ever happens. And uh, this national security analyst had been asking a lot of questions. He had been digging deep into the mystery uh, that, that he had uncovered, which was that there was, in fact, this big brother, all-seeing eye uh, of the government. And so the government had targeted him for assassination. And so he had gone after this mystery so far uh, that he was actually targeted as someone who was innocent but who might be in trouble. And so it was this great kind of coalescence of different uh, lines of the story coming together and the, the, the creator goes and saves him and he's sitting with him in a cafe at one point and the scene unfolds and the, the analyst says, I, I need to know, I need to know who created it and why it was created. And the creator, he doesn't know that he's the creator, but the creator is sitting at the table with him and, and the creator looks at him and he says, that mystery will get you killed. So here's a passport, go to Brazil, start your life over and then he says this, he says, if you, if, you want to, if you want to solve a mystery, solve the mystery of the human heart. Uh, the human heart reveals that we as humans who are capable of doing such good uh, are also capable of doing such great evil. So that's the mystery you want, to, you want to pursue, pursue that mystery. I think that's a good little reminder to us that in fact the human heart is capable of doing great good. We're also capable of doing great evil. And so it raises the question, why is that? Why are we as humans capable of good and capable of evil? The analyst, though, I think was on the right track too. The analyst, he knew inherently that in order to, to understand the mystery that was outside of him, that he needed to go to the creator. He needed to find the guy who made it. So that that guy could explain to him how this machine works and what does it, is it used for and so on and so forth. So he, his instinct was right, that in order to understand the mystery, he had to go to the Creator. I think that that's also instructive for us this morning. As we consider our human hearts being both capable of good and, and capable of evil, the only way to really understand that mystery is not to look deeper within and, and plumb the depths of the mystery of the human heart, but instead it's to go to the Creator. And it's to ask Him, the one who fashioned us in His image, why is it like this? And so, in fact, in order to understand our condition, we must listen to a voice that's outside of us. And in order to understand our sin, we must understand life before sin. And in order to understand life before sin, to understand Genesis 3 itself, we must, in fact, go to the Creator. And He has spoken to us in His Word. And so we can go to the Bible, and we can see why is life the way that it is? Why are humans so capable of great evil? And what we find in Genesis chapter 1 is we find a God who is. In the beginning, God. He is there. He is the Creator. There is no one other than Him. And we find that this God created life for God. Life is created by God and it's created for God. In fact, Genesis 3 presupposes the creation order. That, that life was once not like it is now. It presupposes the creation order of Genesis 1 and 2. Life with God is life in His creation as He created it. God created man to till the ground and to take dominion over the, 
creation, to literally be vice-regents, to be co-rulers with God over His creation. He created woman for man to help in this task, to care for man because we know men that we need to be cared for, to be co-laborers in this. God made clear to Adam and Eve the rules by which to live in His creation. He commands Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He graciously makes provision of all other trees in the garden. And he clearly communicates what the consequences will be if in fact he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One scholar put it this way, it is God's world and he has the right to set the rules. He's the creator, he's the author. It's his world created for him. It's not just that the creation was set in order, but in fact the relationship between God and His, his human creatures, His, his uh, creatures that were created in His image, that that relationship was the, the, the source of all life. Adam and Eve experienced all the fruit of the Spirit, un, unblemished by the stain of sin. Can you imagine a world? Imagine a world where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is what marks everyone. All things are marked by this overwhelming joy and love and peace and fruit of the Spirit. In the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, life was in perfect harmony. The created order worked as it should. Humanity worked as they should. And God ruled over His good creation. It was the world as God created it. And we cannot understand our world today. We cannot understand ourselves. We cannot understand the human heart apart from Genesis 1 and 2. And sadly, sadly, we cannot understand all of these things apart from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 which will be our text this morning. We see two themes from Genesis chapter 3. Two themes that color the rest of the Bible and that teach us of the reality that we live in. And the first theme is that Genesis 3 teaches us about sin. And particularly about sin that leads to death. Sin that leads to death. Secondly, Genesis chapter 3 teaches us about life. But in particular, life after death. Life after death. So, the first thing is that Genesis 3 teaches us about sin leading to death. And secondly, about life after death. About life after death. The famous theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once said that sin, sin is the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. Sin is the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. And what he meant by that is that we can look out into the world and we can see humanity sinning. You can see yourself sinning. It, it's, a, it's a hypothesis that we can test. We know this from our experience. We, we all know that something is wrong in us, that we have committed wrong against other people. And we all know that something is Something wrong has happened to us. Sin has been committed against us. We commit sin and sin is committed against us. We know this to be true. But we've lost the language of sin. We've lost it outside the church 25 years ago. 
The father of modern psychiatry, a man named Carl Menninger, wrote a book with a wonderful title, Whatever Became of Sin. Whatever Became of Sin. And that was 25 years ago. Surely, 25 years later, we can say with uh, great confidence that the language of sin is gone from our cultural lingo. We've also lost the language of sin inside the church. And by God's grace, I think that is not so much the case in this church, unless things have changed in the last 10 months. I don't think they have. But on the whole, I think Christians are given to forgetting the language of sin in the church. We talk about felt needs. We talk about brokenness. We talk about aggressions, both micro and macro. We talk about all sorts of things, but the Scripture talks about sin. Talks about sin. So let us first consider what Genesis 3 teaches us about sin. Hear the Word of God from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Christians have debated the nature and the origin of sin since the very beginning of the church. And before that, the the rabbis and the teachers of the law debated the nature and origin of sin even further back than that. Sin is multifaceted and sin is complex. But here in Genesis 3, in particular verse 6, Genesis 3 verse 6, we see that Adam and Eve's rebellion came through the desire for an, an autonomy from God. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to her eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took, and so she ate. So Adam took, and so Adam ate. And by disobeying God, Adam and Eve showed their stubborn independence and their desire to be like God. Whatever else we may say about the origin of sin, and heavens knows that many people have said many things, but whatever we may say of the origin of sin, the Scripture shows us that sin originated from a prideful and a rebellious heart in Adam and Eve, from a desire to be like God, their Creator. And friends, don't you see this in your own life? Do you believe that you are actually the captain of your own destiny? Do you believe that you can go wherever you wish, that you can do whatever you want to do, that you can be whoever you want to be? 
Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you're resigned to life's fate. Maybe you think the world is conspiring against you. You've lost all hope in your circumstances. One end of the spectrum, you're prideful, and you think you can be anything you want to be. And on the other end of the spectrum, you're despairing, and you think that the world is against you. In both cases, you failed to consider God, just like Adam and Eve. In this instance, they wanted to be like God. They thought that they could be whoever they wanted to be. And they failed to consider that God is their Creator. That God is good. That He's infinitely powerful. That He's a wise Creator who upholds and directs and disposes and governs all of His creatures. From the greatest even to the least. And He does so by His most wise and His most holy providence. And God does this for the end in which He has created them. Friends, God is God and you are not. These same verses show us that our sinful rebellion manifests itself in our disbelieving God's Word and our disobeying God's commands. Sin is at heart a rebellion that leads to disbelief in God's Word and disobedience to God's commands. In Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, God commands the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Tempted by the serpent in the second half of Genesis 3, verse 1, when the serpent says, Did God actually say? Eve then responds by misquoting God's original command. In verse 3, she says, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so the serpent responds in verse 4 and 5, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so in verse 6, Adam and Eve's sinful rebellion shows itself when they take the fruit of the tree and they eat it. Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent, and they disbelieved the truth of God's Word. They did not believe that they would surely die. They obeyed the desires of their wicked hearts, and they disobeyed God's good command. And so by their disbelief and by their disobedience, sin and death entered into God's very good creation. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're struggling in the faith, perhaps what I'm saying to you seems very simplistic. Maybe it seems too simple to explain the the root cause of all the world's problems, all the evil and wickedness, and especially the problem of death. But friends, surely you recognize, and, and I think you would agree, that there is great misery, and there is great suffering, and there is great pain in this world, and that this world is not as it should be. But the question is, do you believe that this is a result of disbelieving God's Word and disobeying God's commands? Friends, I would ask you to consider this in response. Have you perfectly believed God's Word and perfectly obeyed God's commands? If you're here this morning and you do not believe and you are not a Christian, my question is, have you believed God's Word and have you obeyed God's commands? I haven't. 
You have not. And so you may object at this point, and you may say, well, of course I haven't, because I'm not a Christian. I, I don't believe these things. But isn't that the point? Isn't that the point? If, in fact, as the Bible says, the reason for all the evil in the world is that we disbelieve God's Word, and we disobey God's commands, your objection to believing God's Word is only confirming what the Bible says. We disbelieve God's Word, we disobey God's commands, and we are sinners because of it. We are sinners because of it, and evil lurks in our hearts, and we are condemned to death. The 1689 London Baptist Confession puts it this way, Our first parents, by this very sin, of disbelieving God's Word and disobeying His commands, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon us all, all becoming dead in our sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Genesis 3, verses 1-6 to teach us that sin is the prideful rebellion of disbelieving God's Word and disobeying God's commands. And the wages of our sin is death. This section of Genesis 3, it ends with a peculiar question kind of hanging over the story. Verse 7 says that, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. A kind of anticlimactic ending to the plunging of all humanity into sin and death, right? But it's pregnant with meaning. It's pregnant with anticipation. What will God do? What will happen to Adam and Eve? What is life like now in the garden? Adam and Eve are still alive. The wages of their sin is death, but they aren't dead yet. But don't misunderstand the point made here in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are not yet physically dead, but the blessed life of the garden, the life is that they, as they knew it, paradise itself was lost. They are not physically dead, but they are spiritually dead. Adam and Eve are in fact the walking dead. And so the rest of this chapter, the rest of this chapter, Genesis 3 verses 8 through 24, teaches us about life after death about life after death. So hear the Word of God this morning, starting in verse 8 through verse 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because of you, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him from out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In this newfound world of sin, Genesis 3, verses 8 to 24, teach us about the justice of God. Friends, God keeps His Word. He must keep His Word because God does not lie. He is holy, He is righteous in all His ways. And so these verses in Genesis 3 teach us about God's justice, about His judgment on sin. Notice that God pronounces three judgments or three curses on sin. First, God curses the relationship between man and his creation. Man and his creation. God curses the relationship between persons. Between persons. And God curses the relationship between God and man. Between God and man. God curses the relationship between man and the creation. Between persons and between God and man. We see the curse of the relationship between man and creation in verses 14 and 15 where God curses the serpent and places enmity between the serpent and the man. The serpent in these verses is, uh, is certainly representative of more than just uh, the, the, the creation or more than just the animal kingdom. Uh, it's more than just a mere animal. It's representative of Satan himself. We see this in Revelation when uh, Satan is described as a dragon and a roaring, uh, roaring dragon, a serpent. Uh, in, in Revelation. But the serpent here is not less than an animal. He is in fact a serpent. Where Adam named all the animals exercising a good authority over them in chapter 2, now the animal speaks back. And the animal poses a threat to man and to the other animals. You see, God curses the creation as a whole in verses 17, 18, and 19. He makes it Work, he makes work difficult and he makes work drudgery, but he also create, he, he curses all of the created order, uh, both animals and the creation itself. In the garden, every tree bore good fruit, but now we toil and we toil and we toil. And by the sweat of our brow, we may, if God is gracious, eat of our bread. But we know, we know the painful reality of the curse on creation. Mike prayed in the pastoral prayer about the floods in West Virginia. Uh, Texas has been flooded several times in the last 10 months. 
The created order is not as it should be. Natural disasters, powerful storms, great famines, great poverty. We're all, we are, we're all too aware that the creation, it groans under the weight of the curse laid forth here in Genesis chapter 3. Notice second, that God curses the relationship between persons. Between persons. The judgment of God falls on relationships between persons. In verse 16, he tells us that the woman, he tells the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. For the mothers in the room, I don't need to tell you how real that this curse is today. Right? Even in the midst of participating with God and bringing new life into the world, childbearing is a painful activity even with an epidural. We see this pain in the normal births. And perhaps we see this pain more acutely in the complications. We especially feel this pain in the weight of this judgment, the burden of our sin, in the losses, in the miscarriages, in the abortions. In the midst of new life, there is so much pain and there's so much death. Christian, we should not be a people afraid to talk about the reality that in this life, childbearing is one of the greatest joys, but it's also one of the greatest sorrows. We of all people know that true, the truth that pain in childbearing is but a sign of the curse of our sin. Christian, we should be free to minister to the woman who has just miscarried, to weep with her, to comfort her, to encourage her. I'm reminded by how this congregation cared for me and Lindsay whenever we had several miscarriages early in our marriage. I encourage you to keep doing that. Love people. Don't run away from the sorrows and the pains of life. Minister to them whenever they are hurting because of these miscarriages that we don't talk about much. Go to them. Comfort them. We also need to plead as a fellow sinner with the woman considering an abortion to lovingly call her to repentance. We must feel the weight of the millions of dead children in this country and around the world. And as Christians, we must do what we can. We counsel, we advocate, most importantly, we pray. And we do this to push back the darkness, to push back the curse that is so evident. We also see in these verses that the relationship between man and woman is cursed. It starts to show itself first in verse 12. Verse 12, rather than surrendering to God's questions, Adam follows the serpent and he questions God. This is the woman that you made, that you gave to me. Adam shifts the blame from himself to Eve. And Eve is no better. Eve blames the serpent. And like Adam, she really blames her Creator. In their so-called knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve indict God as a wicked and foolish creator. 
the relationship between husband and wife was cursed and the serpent has been at work tearing apart marriages even to this very day. Church, we should be a people who can talk honestly and compassionately not just about the pains of childbirth, but also about the effects of sin on human relationships. Strife, division, heartache mark many, if not the majority, of marriages and relationships today. Let us be ministers of reconciliation, bringing the gospel of peace to sinners who are at war with one another because of the sin that we read about in Genesis 3. Third, and throughout these verses, but especially in verses 22 to 24, we read of the cursed relationship between God and between man. And really, the previous judgments of God, the, 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 the judgment of God between, between man and His creation, and the judgment of God between persons, is really just an overflow of this particular curse, this particular cursed relationship, where in verses 8-13, through 13, Adam and Eve hide from God. Where they once walked with God in the garden, now they hide from God. They avoid His questions. His words are no longer an encouragement, but instead are an indictment. And after pronouncing curses on the relationship between man and the creation and the persons, in verse 22 through 24, God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. He severs the relation, the only relationship, the only. Can you imagine? We know nothing but a fallen world, but Adam and Eve knew nothing but a perfect relationship with God. He severs it banishes them from the garden. This is the death sentence that we expected back in verse 7. What was pregnant with anticipation in verse 7 finds its fulfillment in verses 22 and 24 when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and death reigns in that moment. Life outside the garden is life characterized by broken relationships and by death itself. This is the right judgment of God for our sin. We have to understand that. We have to come to grips with that. We cannot push that away. We cannot push it down and suppress the truth and pretend like everything's okay. Now, this is the right judgment of God against our sin. It's sad and it's wicked and horrible that we have to endure these things because of our wickedness and the wicked things that people do against us. Those are wicked things. It doesn't mitigate that. But it's also the right judgment. God is not wicked in His judgments, but we deserve these things in some regard. But, but, in the midst of all the bad news of Genesis 3, in the midst of these curses that God lays upon His creation, Genesis 3 teaches us that God's justice is laced with God's mercy. God's justice is laced with God's mercy. His justice demands that He punish and His mercy causes Him to pardon God is just and God is merciful. He is not one to the exclusion of the other. He is one in the fullness of the other. And in Genesis 3, we see God's mercy in the midst of God's justice in four particular ways. 
Verses 8 to 9, we read about God walking in the midst of the garden, calling out to Adam, Where are you? Where are you? These people had disbelieved God's word, they had disobeyed God's command, and yet God sought after them. God sought after them. They deserved to be cast out, they deserved to be put to death, yet God sought them out. How gracious is God that He would seek and save the lost. In verse 15, God speaks. He preaches what is the first gospel message when He promises to send a boy born of a woman into the world who would save His people from their sins. God foretells the judgment He will bear, this boy will bear when the serpent strikes the boy's heel. But He promises that this boy, this better word, will crush the head of the serpent. Verse 21 is a seemingly innocent throwaway, throwaway verse. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. But remember verse 7. Adam and Eve's response is to sew fig leaves together and make themselves loincloths. And in verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Don't miss the significance. Adam and Eve were naked. They were ashamed. They had covered themselves with loincloths, but their sin had caused them great guilt and great shame in their souls. Imagine the fall from innocence and the weight of such shame. Perhaps God would respond like a raging father towards his children's misdeeds. But he doesn't do that. No, God seeks after them. He provides for them. They were naked and ashamed, only with loincloths, so He gave them clothes to cover their shame. What a tangibly kind thing to do for Adam and Eve. Christian, never forget that you too can do tangibly kind things for people in need. But, in the midst of seeking Adam and Eve, in the midst of speaking a better word to them, in the midst of clothing them, do you see the imagery? Do you see the imagery? He's provided means to deal with their immediate need, but He did so by the shedding of blood. The garments of skin came by the shedding of blood from animals. Something had to die so that Adam and Eve might be covered. And so this is a thread that runs through the rest of Scripture. And the rest of Scripture testifies to the truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The judgments and the mercies of God in Genesis 3 are but a foreshadowing of the coming Lord Jesus. The boy that is promised in Genesis 3.15, the singular male pronoun, all of the judgments are laid on Him and all of the mercies are made available through Him. God's justice demands punishment for sin and God's mercy offers pardon for sin in Jesus Christ. Both punishment and pardon are found in the Son of Genesis 3.15, Jesus Christ. He was punished in the place of sinners hanging on the tree, and sinners are pardoned by faith in Him from all of the wrath of God. Eternal life is found in believing God's Word, Jesus Christ in the flesh, who obeyed all of God's commands. So as the old hymn says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. It goes on to say that from heaven He came and sought her by to be His holy bride. Do you see the imagery here that the hymn 
points to in Genesis 3. From heaven He came and sought her. Just like the Father God came and sought Adam and Eve, Jesus Christ comes from heaven to seek and save His church. Just as the relationship between Adam and Eve is severed, Jesus Christ comes and He gets His bride back as the holy husband. She, the church, you, Christian, are His new creation. The creation is cursed under the weight of our sin. But in Jesus Christ, you have been made a new creation. And He's done this by water and the Word. From heaven He came and He did these things. He bought her. He bought the church. He died for her. And He goes on to say that for her life, He died. He died. God covers Adam and Eve with the, dead, the skin of dead animals. And He covers you, Christian, with His own blood when He died on the cross. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the church. He is the bearer of God's judgments. And He offers mercy to anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in Him. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Turn from your sin. Turn from the wrath of God. Turn from the judgments of God. And trust Jesus Christ who died for sinners. And he was raised for your salvation. As we conclude this morning, in verse 23, we're told that God sent them out of the Garden of Eden. In verse 24, He drove out the man to labor and toil and bear the weight of sin that He had committed. And on its face, this may seem like an act of judgment, and it is. It's justice laced with mercy. The justice of God drove them out of His presence. He exiled them from the garden. And so you may wonder how this is laced with mercy. But in Jesus Christ, God says, Come unto Me. God says, Come unto Me. In Jesus Christ, all who, are la- all who labor and are heavy laden. Come unto Me, all who are weary and burdened in sin. Come unto Me, all who are desperate need. Come unto Me, all who are afraid of death, who are afraid of judgment. Come unto Me, I will give you rest. Come unto Me, I will give you life. In Jesus Christ, the justice of God is satisfied. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And He says, come unto Me. As a son and daughter of Adam and Eve, that promise holds true today. They may have been banished out of the garden, but God and Jesus Christ says, come unto Me. So Genesis 3 is a story about life after death. It's a story about God's judgment. But exceedingly more, it's a story about God's mercy and about God's grace in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a gracious and good God. You are admirable in your wisdom and in your goodness. You saw that man had thrown that we had thrown ourselves into death, that we had made ourselves wholly miserable. Yet you were pleased to seek us out. Yet you were pleased to comfort us when in trembling we fled from you. You promised that you would send your Son, and you held true to your promise. And in your Son you would make us happy and glad now and into eternity. Lord God, I pray that we would trust you, 
We would trust your word. We would obey your commands. We would be happy with you. Into eternity we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.